This is History 2311, Week 6B, The New Deal. Now wake up, boys. Get out on the rock. It ain't daybreak, but it's four o'clock. Oh, no, 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 Pops. You know that ain't the play. What you talking about? It's the WPA. Oh, the WBA. Now, I said that. The WBA. Sleep while you work, while you rest, while you play. Lean on your shovel to pass the time away. Taint what you do, you can job for your pay. Where is that? The WBA. W-B-A. W-B-A. Now don't be a fool working hard as passe. You'll stand from five to six hours a day. Sit down and joke while you smoke. It's okay. The W-B-A. I'm so tired. Don't know what to do. Can't get by. So I'll take my rest until my work is through. The WBA. Well, the COVID pandemic and Trump's impeachment or impeachments and all the other dramas of 2020 and 2021 have kind of pushed it out of the news. But a couple of years ago, everybody was talking about the climate crisis and about something called the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal, as as many of you know, and certainly all of you who were in American Nightmare 2310 certainly know, is an ambitious and progressive plan or, or set of plans for taking action against climate change and the climate crisis and global warming, as well as some efforts towards economic justice. And The Green New Deal is really exciting and important, but the interesting thing to me in the context of a U.S. history course is just the name Green New Deal, because the New Deal is kind of a collective name for all the policies of the Franklin Roosevelt administration during the Great Depression. And so as a historian, one of my questions is, what does it mean for progressives today to unapologetically attach a proposal for environmental protection to the memory of the New Deal of the 1930s. And I think it suggests to me that there has been a change in the collective memory of the New Deal. For a long time, liberals and even people to the left of liberals looked back on the New Deal with nostalgia as kind of the high watermark of American liberalism, a time when the government really acted to help the people, a time when people really believed that the government could achieve great things. But By the 1980s and 1990s, certainly for most of my life, that faith in government uh, was gone on the right and on the left. For most of my lifetime, certainly what I can remember in the Reagan years and the Clinton years, Republicans attacked the New Deal and Democrats kind of disowned it. They capitulated uh, trying to dissociate themselves from big government, government spending, and the boogeyman of socialism. So when I see excitement today around a Green New Deal, I'm interested both in the policy, but also in the name. Thus, today's topic, the original New Deal. When Franklin Roosevelt won the Democratic nomination for president in 1932, in the speech that he gave, he promised a new deal for the American people. And the press liked this phrase, and it stuck, and it stuck for years. But it was not a specific plan or policy, and and maybe that's why the phrase stuck, because it was sort of a promise to do something new, but nothing specific. 
And that's kind of true of the whole New Deal in that it wasn't carefully thought out in advance. It didn't spring from the brain of Franklin Roosevelt, even though it could not have happened without him. Franklin Roosevelt was an extremely wealthy politician from New York. He was a distant cousin of Teddy Roosevelt, something like a fifth cousin of Teddy Roosevelt. And he actually had always aimed to follow in his famous cousin's footsteps. Teddy Roosevelt was the assistant secretary of the Navy during the Spanish-American War. Franklin Roosevelt was the assistant secretary of the Navy during the First World War. Immediately after the Spanish-American War, Teddy Roosevelt was elected vice president. In 1920, immediately after World War I, Franklin was the Democratic candidate for vice president with James Cox. Now, the fact that Franklin Roosevelt ran as a Democrat rather than a Republican was a sign of how Teddy Roosevelt's defection from the Republican Party in 1912 had changed the two parties. Teddy Roosevelt kind of led the progressive liberal wing out of the Republican Party, and it never really returned. Of course, the Democrats didn't win election in 1920, so Franklin didn't become vice president. His path diverged a little from Teddy's, but he continued his rise and continued to mirror his, his cousin's career remarkably. In 1928, he was elected governor of New York, just like Teddy 20 years before. Something else that happened to Roosevelt in the 1920s, in the early 1920s, Franklin Roosevelt contracted polio and lost the use of his legs. For the rest of his life, he could stand with crutches, but he really couldn't walk. And this fact was carefully concealed from the public as his political career went on. It's hard to believe today that you could do that. But remember, this was a pre-television age, and the press kind of cooperated in covering up his disability. They never reported on it. They rarely photographed him in a wheelchair. And so it's not that people didn't know, but it wasn't part of his public persona. Now, Roosevelt was not an economist or a political theorist or a great intellectual, but he was a master politician and a great communicator. You'll recall that Herbert Hoover won the election of 1928 quite easily, but given the economic crisis the country was facing by 1932 and Hoover's lackluster response to that and his resulting deep unpopularity, he had very poor chances in the election of 1932. Still, Roosevelt's electoral victory and the change between 1928 and 1932 was remarkable. I mean, look at that. That is a huge swing. And actually, uh, Roosevelt's victory in 1936 would be even more lopsided, but I'll get to that. In those days, the lame duck period, the period between the election and the inauguration of the new president, was even longer than it is now. The elections in November, the new president wasn't sworn in in those days until March. Roosevelt spent the months between his election and his inauguration planning and assembling a team of experts and advisors who they came to call the Brain Trust, which was a play on the oil trusts and the coal trusts of the Gilded Age. And the first point to be made about the New Deal was that it was not ever one thing. It was not a single plan. It was not a single policy. It was not a single philosophy, which makes it hard to generalize about. It was an improvised series of responses to the economic crisis. Roosevelt tried a lot of different things to see what would work. And it's really only in retrospect that we can talk about a cluster of influential policies and call them the New Deal.
in the lecture today, rather than try to cover every single policy or program, I will give a series of examples of the kinds of things the New Deal did and the way the New Deal evolved as Roosevelt and Congress responded to each other and to the public and to the Supreme Court and to the changing world of the Depression. You can sort of group these policies and reactions into three three phases or chapters, an effort to get immediate relief from the economic crisis of the early 1930s, then a period of reaching towards, not always succeeding in, more radical reforms, and finally the retreat of the New Deal towards the end of the decade. And then at the end of the talk, I'll try and speak a little bit about some of the legacies of the New Deal. But we'll begin with the crisis of 1932-1933 and Roosevelt's efforts at immediate relief. The American banking system had been struggling, really crumbling since the stock market crash of 1929. And by the winter of 1932-33, it was in complete collapse. You can see that here in this graph of bank failures per year. You can see that thousands of banks were collapsing in that terrible year of 1933. You can also see that clearly something happened, something was done that year that saved or changed the system. Now, there's one or two ways this graph is misleading. Banks today are much bigger. They're consolidated. They've merged. They're much bigger than banks were back. There were lots of little banks back in the 1920s and 30s. So that tiny little bump at the right side of the graph around 2009 doesn't look like much, but actually it was a terrible financial panic because those were really big banks collapsing. Nevertheless, the U.S. financial system has never been in worse shape than it was that terrible winter of 1932-33. In the first lines of his first speech as president in March of 33, Roosevelt called for calm, saying, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It's a famous quote, but people always only quote that first part, which makes it sound like Roosevelt was saying, there's nothing to be afraid of. What, re what he's really saying is, the only thing we have to fear is fear of taking action, terror which paralyzes needed efforts. So Roosevelt is not saying everything is okay, because in March 1933, everything was not okay. He's saying the only thing we have to fear is fear of action. It is better to do something than to do nothing. And that was very much Roosevelt's philosophy. On his first day in office, Roosevelt closed every bank in the country. He called it a holiday. Uh, and then he called on Congress to ratify his action. Congress quickly passed an emergency banking act, which gave the government the power to reorganize the banks and also to issue currency and increase the money supply. On the first Sunday after taking office, Roosevelt spoke to the nation over the radio in the first of his famous fireside chats, and 60 million people tuned in to hear the president explain in a calm, kind of fatherly way, how the banks worked and what he had done. And he assured Americans that their money would be safer in a reopened bank than you know, under the mattress or something. He urged Americans to trust the banks, to trust the government, and to trust him. And Roosevelt took great pains to say that there was nothing radical about what he was doing. He said, I'm, I'm just being sensible. I'm just trying to do what's right. Even in that phrase, the bank holiday. I mean, he had seized control of the entire economy. He had locked down the whole financial system, but he just called it a holiday. We're just taking a holiday. The next day, they let the banks begin to open again, gradually, and depending on how sound their finances were. Some banks opened without restrictions, some opened with limits on withdrawals, some were absorbed by other banks, 
and about a fifth were just closed down entirely. Congress then passed the Banking Act of 1933, which regulated banking, and in particular, it separated banks that held the savings of ordinary people from financial banks that invested on Wall Street, so that if a bank got wiped out speculating, it wasn't wiping out ordinary people's savings. They also created the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is a government bureau that ensures the safety of people's savings. And that's why the left side of this graph up to 1933 looks completely different than the right side of this graph every year thereafter. The political economist Raymond Moley said in 1933, capitalism was saved in eight days. Now, the bank holiday demonstrates a kind of a pattern or a template for New Deal legislation. Roosevelt would take swift action, sometimes of dubious constitutionality. It really wasn't clear if he had the legal authority to reorganize the nation's banks in the way that he did. But Roosevelt would take swift action and Congress would quickly comply. The Democrats had a big majority in Congress, both houses of Congress. And at least in Roosevelt's first term, they generally went along with whatever he wanted. And then having done this, the president would then sell the action to the general public with plain talk and folksy language. So it was not the Emergency Banking Act, it was the bank holiday. And this pattern repeated with a bunch of different legislation. When a new president is elected, people often talk about the first 100 days as kind of a measure of how much they could get done in that first 100 days. That phrase was actually coined by Roosevelt himself in one of his early radio chats in which he congratulated himself and Congress on how much they had gotten done in about three months. And Roosevelt's first 100 days did see a whirlwind of legislative activity, new laws, new policies, new organizations that may never have been matched since. After saving the banks, Roosevelt's next priority was relief for suffering Americans. Remember uh, last time I talked about how there was deep resistance to government welfare, to giving handouts to the poor. There's even resistance. People didn't want to take handouts. In answer to that resistance, the New Dealers established something called the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC. And what the CCC was, was that young men, unemployed men between the ages of like 18 to 35, could sign up and they would head out to a camp somewhere in the nation's interior, in a forest, in a national park, where they'd be put to work building roads, planting trees, repairing dams. And they paid them, but they were being paid for work, so it didn't seem like charity. It also had a kind of a quasi-health, character-building, summer camp aspect to it, because they would take young men from like inner cities, from New York and Chicago, out to Wyoming or Idaho to work in the open air. The CCC was one of the most popular of the new New Deal agencies. And so in 1935, the government magnified it more than tenfold, creating the Works Progress Administration, which was basically a make work program that hired millions of people to build highways, build airports, build schools, playgrounds, post offices, put up electrical power lines. They built something like 40,000 public buildings, 72,000 schools, 80,000 bridges over the next 10 years. Some of these public works projects were huge, like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which built a massive hydroelectric dam on the Tennessee River and basically brought electrical power to the entire Southeast. But there were also tens of thousands of little projects, almost any conceivable public good you could think of. 
The WPA paid artists to paint murals and sculpt sculptures. A lot of them are gone now, but there was a time when just about every small city across the United States had a WPA mural in its post office. And a lot of the murals had this kind of art, which you see in this, this William Gropper mural, this certain particular kind of patriotic social realism art uh, with kind of big burly men working that, that the art celebrated America, it celebrated the working man. There was also a federal theater project, a federal writers project. So they were paying playwrights to write plays. They were paying musicians to play music, creating orchestras and bands all over the country. A public opinion poll in 1939 asked Americans to name the best thing uh, that the Roosevelt administration had done. And 28% said the WPA, which made it the most popular New Deal measure. I should say the same poll also asked Americans to name the worst thing the administration had done. And 23% said the WPA, making it also the most unpopular New Deal measure. It's certainly true that some WPA projects looked like boondoggles like maybe there were wastes of public money. That's the joke being made in the Louis Armstrong song I played at the top. And there was definitely all sorts of opportunity for corruption. I mean, you know, if you're building thousands of new post offices, thousands of new libraries, who decides which town gets the money? Who decides which construction company gets the contract? There's lots of room for people to skim off the top. Did every town in America need a beautiful mural in its post office? Maybe not. But the goal of the project was to hire as many people as quickly as possible. It was a make work project. The goal was to do something useful with this public money, but not something that private industry would do on its own. If the government had started hiring people to build cars or to grow wheat, then they'd be competing with private industry. So the WPA by definition did work that would not otherwise have gotten done, that the free market would not have done on its own. Playgrounds, parks, plays, murals, artwork. And it did all that while putting people back to work. I mean, there's worse things to do with government money. So that was the relief phase of the New Deal. The desperate two years in which the government basically staunched the bleeding and stopped the economy from total collapse. In the midterm election of 1934, the Democrats actually gained seats. This was one of only two times since the Civil War that the president's party has gained seats in a midterm election. The only other time, I think, was uh, 2002 after the September 11th terrorist attacks. So the election of 1934 seemed a clear endorsement of Roosevelt and the New Deal. In fact, the main political opposition to Roosevelt in 1934-35 did not come from the Republicans or from conservatives who thought he was going too far. It came from more radical voices who thought he was not doing enough. In California, the novelist Upton Sinclair won the Democratic nomination for governor, basically ran on a socialist platform and came quite close to winning, a kind of socialist insurgency inside the Democratic Party. Another important critic of Roosevelt's was Father Charles Coughlin, who was an influential radio priest who attracted millions of listeners with weekly broadcasts in which he attacked Wall Street bankers and greedy capitalists and called for the government to take over key industries. Now, Coughlin was also kind of a raving anti-Semite, and as the decade went on, he was making increasingly hysterical and distasteful attacks on Jews and eventually voicing complete support for Mussolini and Hitler. Another notable character in the politics of the 1930s was Huey Long, the uh, populist governor of Louisiana. 
Long was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1932, but continued to run the state government of Louisiana at the same time. He was known for what he called the Share Our Wealth Plan. His proposal was to just cap all fortunes in the country at maybe $10 million or $50 million and say, you can't have more money than that. And then use the money taxed off those big fortunes to give every family in the country a minimum of like $5,000. Long became very popular, became a national figure. It was widely expected he was going to run for president in 1936, uh, but he was assassinated. He was shot by the son of one of his political enemies in 1935. Before that happened, Franklin Roosevelt regarded Huey Long as a kind of proto-fascist. In fact, Roosevelt said that Huey Long was one of the two most dangerous men in the country. The other was General Douglas MacArthur. Roosevelt hadn't forgotten the way MacArthur defied Hoover to rout the Bonus Army, uh, and he hadn't forgotten the way MacArthur had strutted down Pennsylvania Avenue, convinced the crowds were cheering for him and for this exercise of force. Remember, these were the years that saw the rise of fascism in Europe. Mussolini in Italy, Hitler in Germany, and the economic crisis of the depression was also a political crisis, a crisis of faith in democracy itself. Certainly there were fears of fascism taking hold in America. And this slide here shows a poster for the Federal Theater Project, which was itself another New Deal program, putting on a Sinclair Lewis play uh, called It Can't Happen Here, about fascism in America. Roosevelt heard the criticisms uh, that he wasn't doing enough, that things weren't improving fast enough, and he feared that if he didn't do more, people would turn to autocratic leaders. They would turn to the easy answers of fascism. So in the second half of his first term, with the political power that he got from those midterm elections in 1934, Roosevelt got more radical, or at least he went farther than he had been able to go before. Roosevelt worked with Congress to pass the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, also known as the Wagner Act, which guaranteed workers the basic right to join a union, to bargain collectively. It, it prohibited employers from firing workers for striking. Congress also passed the Fair Labor Act, which created the minimum wage for the first time. And it increased income taxes on a highly progressive scale. That is, the rich paid considerably higher tax rates than the poor. In 1936, the labor leader, John Lewis, told workers in all his speeches, the president wants you to join a union. And that was a remarkable thing. Remember that for 50 years, government, both parties had been hostile to the labor movement. Union activists were seen as dangerous alien radicals. Think about the great railroad strike of 1877 when they sent out the army to put down the strike or the Pullman strike or the Red Scare of 1919. The Roosevelt government made peace with labor. In fact, they made allies of labor, forging a crucial political alliance between the Democratic Party and the labor movement. The New Deal kind of brought labor into the establishment. It made unions partners, junior partners, I would say, but still partners with government and business in stabilizing the economy. Unions gained a new influence in American life. They were able to use their power in these years to increase wages, enhance job security, improve working conditions. And the effect of this all was also to de-radicalize the labor movement. The New Dealers partnered with the more moderate elements of the labor movement and in effect marginalized the more socialist radical elements of the movement. 
they gave organized labor a stake in preserving the system. And that kind of quieted calls for, you know, a workers' revolution. Another thing the Roosevelt administration did in 1935, one of the biggest, longest-lived achievements of the Roosevelt administration was in 1935 to pass the Social Security Act, creating Social Security, a system of old age pensions and unemployment insurance that is still the centerpiece of the modern American social welfare state. The idea is that all workers pay into Social Security while they're working, they pay a tax that goes into Social Security, and then they are guaranteed a pension when they retire. Social Security is probably the most beloved, least controversial of the New Deal legacies. More controversial programs included the Agricultural Adjustment Association, or the AAA. This was an agency designed to control farm production and farm commodity prices. Remember, part of the problem of the depression, part of the economic collapse was that farm prices were so low, crop prices were so low that, that farmers could almost not afford even to take their crops to market. Basically, what the AAA did was pay farmers subsidies not to farm, or they paid them to reduce their production by only planting on part of the land or by killing off excess livestock. The idea was to reduce crop production, reduce crop surplus, and thus raise crop prices. And this was hugely controversial. I mean, some people said it was desperately needed, but to other people, the spectacle of the government destroying crops in the midst of hunger, you know, slaughtering a million baby piglets so as to protect hog prices in future years seemed inexplicable to people. And as the slide says, in the following year, the AAA would be declared unconstitutional. The AAA was accompanied by a kind of a similar program for industry called the National Recovery Administration, or NRA, not to be confused with the National Rifle Association. The goal of the NRA was not to lower production, but to control prices and wages. The NRA temporarily suspended antitrust laws, which would normally make it illegal for competitors in a given industry to get together and fix prices or wages or production levels. But the the NRA encouraged industry and labor and government to come together and establish what they called codes, which is to set minimum prices for goods and minimum wages for workers and so on. If you're getting confused by all the acronyms, NRA, AAA, PWA, WPA, you're not alone. Even at the time, people complained about the uh, so-called alphabet soup of the New Deal. This cartoon shows Uncle Sam tied down like Gulliver tied down by the Lilliputians by all the different New Deal projects. I only just noticed that the artist of this cartoon is William Gropper, who is the same artist that painted this mural here, which is kind of interesting. Classic example of New Deal art paid for by the government. And here's an anti-New Deal cartoon. Kind of makes me curious about Gropper's background and his politics. Maybe someone could look into that. But, you know, that's free speech for you. Painting a New Deal mural doesn't mean you can't criticize the New Deal. Anyway, you shouldn't feel like you have to try and memorize all these programs, all these acronyms, keep track of every New Deal policy. It's less important to memorize every three-letter acronym than, I think, to understand the broad approaches that the Roosevelt government was trying and the very different results that each of those approaches met. We can kind of group the New Deal programs into three big clumps. 
First are the programs designed to provide immediate relief, things like the CCC and the WPA, programs that made work, that created jobs, that put money into people's hands, although sometimes tried to disguise it so it didn't look like a handout. And these programs were sometimes controversial, but were generally successful. They lasted for most of the decade. Most of them were disbanded after 1940 or with the coming of the Second World War. The second block of New Deal programs were efforts to more actively manage the economy. This is things like the AAA and the NRA, which actually tried to control prices and wages or production in a direct centralized way. These are more radical than the relief programs and and they triggered much more direct political pushback. Both the AAA and the NRA would be deemed unconstitutional. And then the final block or group of New Deal programs were efforts to reform or stabilize or kind of humanize the economy. Things like social security, things like the right to collective bargaining, the National Labor Relations Act. And these things stayed in place for decades to come. Many of them are still in place today, although a few have been eroded over the years. There were limits to what the New Deal could achieve, and and by the later 1930s, in a lot of ways, the New Deal would go into retreat. In May 1935, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that the NRA was unconstitutional. They said the government does not have the authority to control commerce in this way. In January 1936, the Supreme Court then declared the AAA unconstitutional. They called it an unprecedented seizure of power by the federal government. These legal decisions, these legal defeats led to a showdown between Roosevelt and the Supreme Court, where he proposed increasing the size of the Supreme Court, letting him appoint a bunch of new judges. This was called the court packing plan. And it's kind of been back in the news today because uh, some people on the left say that, that the Republicans have been so successful in stacking the Supreme Court with conservative judges who are going to be on there for a long, long time. They say that the Democrats or Joe Biden should increase the size of the court uh, and appoint a bunch of liberal judges. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court has to be nine judges. There used to only be seven. Before that, there were six. So technically, it would not be illegal for the president to pack the court in this way. But it is extremely controversial. It was controversial then. It's controversial now. It really looked like Roosevelt was trying to change the constitutional rules of the game. Roosevelt's proposal brought a strong pushback from the right, from Republicans, but also significantly from more conservative Democrats, especially white Southern Democrats. Roosevelt's party had a lot of conservatives in it, and they had gone along with him for a certain amount of time, but this is now the moment where they were beginning to push back. By 1937, 1938, Roosevelt was facing more and more criticism from conservatives, from people who said that he was becoming a dictator. So here we have that same anxiety, but the rise of fascism, the collapse of democracy, except the anxiety is pointed at Roosevelt, that he is a threat to democracy. And in the midterm elections of 1938, Roosevelt suffered his first serious defeats. The Republicans won back a lot of seats. Also, Roosevelt suffered defections from Southern Democrats who were no longer willing to support Uh, the more radical or progressive aspects of the New Deal. You can also see on this slide, there was kind of a second economic crisis or a second depression. Around 1936, the unemployment rate shot back up again as the economy, which had seemed to be doing well, sort of stumbled. And the shape of the New Deal was always marked by the compromises Roosevelt had to make, in particular, the compromises he had to make with conservatives in his own party, especially those Southern Democrats. They were able to limit the New Deal's radicalism in critical ways. 
including limiting the ways in which it benefited African Americans. A lot of the most important New Deal programs were constructed in ways that that really limited what Black Americans would get out of them. Take the Agricultural Adjustment Act. So remember, it paid farmers to reduce the amount of crops they produced, but it was designed to support farmers who owned their land. It was really no help to sharecroppers or tenant farmers who just lived on the land because it was the landowners, their landlords, who got those government subsidy checks. And they got those checks, they got paid to stop farming or to farm less, and they just kicked the sharecroppers off their land because they didn't need their labor. And they reinvested a lot of that money in mechanical farming equipment that further suppressed the demand for labor. So the end result of the AAA was really to push a lot of sharecroppers and tenant farmers, many of whom are Black, off the land. Or take the Social Security Act. Conservatives did not want to pay pensions to African Americans, and Roosevelt agreed to exclude farm workers and domestic servants from Social Security. Who make up the majority of farm workers and domestic servants? So this compromise meant that something like two-thirds of Black workers, or at least two-thirds of Black workers in the South, were excluded from the single most important part of America's economic safety net. So what are some of the legacies of the New Deal? Well, one thing the New Deal did was to redraw the map of American politics. Remember when we were talking about the election of 1896, I said every U.S. government is a coalition government. Every American election is a contest to stitch together some kind of alliance that adds up to more than 51%, more than the other side. And the elections that really matter, because not every election does really matter, but the elections that really matter are the ones that shake up those coalitions. And 1896 was one of those elections. That Republican coalition that McKinley put together set the template for the next 30 years of Republican dominance. The Republicans were the party of business and the party of the white middle class, but they were also the party of African-Americans. Before 1912, they were the party of kind of liberal progressives. And they dominated Congress and the White House for this whole period from the 1890s into the 1920s. From 1896 to 1932, there was only one Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson, and that only happened when, you know, Teddy Roosevelt split the Republican vote in 1912. But the election of 1932 changed the game. Like 1896, it was one of those pivotal elections that redrew the coalitions, that redrew the electoral map. Franklin Roosevelt put together a new coalition on the Democratic side. He kept the white Southerners, who were the Democratic Party's oldest base, it would still be another 30 years or so before they would leave the party, but he brought in or consolidated a host of new voters, including sort of white ethnic working class, Italian Americans, Irish Americans, thousands of working class Americans got jobs with the CCC or the WPA and became Democrats for life. The New Deal also brought African American voters into the Democratic Party. Since Reconstruction, Black Americans had generally supported the Republicans, the party of Lincoln, the party that freed the slaves. But as African Americans moved north in the Great Migration, more and more of them found a political home in the Democratic Party. Now, the Democrats were still weak on the issue of civil rights, 
Roosevelt was not a great champion of civil rights. Actually, his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, was much more sympathetic to the issue. And she kind of lobbied Franklin on this issue. But in general, Franklin was not willing to challenge the Southern Democrats on race issues and, and efforts to pass anti-discrimination laws, anti-lynching laws in the 1930s largely failed. But that said, New Deal programs offered assistance to the poor and to the unemployed. And that included a significant number of Black Americans. So well before the Democrats made any real move towards being a party that supported African-American civil rights, it was becoming a party supported by African-Americans. Now, this wasn't always an easy coalition to hold together. And eventually, as we'll see in a few weeks, it would fall apart. But for the next 30 years, it was the Democrats who dominated Congress and the White House. And, you know, I don't expect you to know or to memorize all the presidents, all the dates of all of the elections in U.S. history. I, history for me has never been about memorization. But if you want a simple way to keep track, a simple way to think about the political history of the 20th century, what I suggest is breaking it into thirds. The first third of the 20th century is an era of Republican dominance. From McKinley to Hoover, you have only Republican presidents except for one Democrat, Wilson. And Wilson could almost have been a Republican. Then from 1932 to 1968, you have a period of democratic dominance and only democratic presidents except for one, Eisenhower. And Eisenhower could have been a Democrat. And you'll have to wait to see the third slide, but here, here's a spoiler warning. In the last third of the 20th century, we're going to go back to Republican dominance once again. Did the New Deal end the Great Depression? You'd, you'd think this would be a simple question, the first question that a historian should be able to answer. But Debate on this question is extremely partisan and it has to do with your politics today. Liberals praise the New Deal. They say, yes, they say Roosevelt reformed capitalism in order to save it. Conservatives say, no, they say the New Deal was misguided and they won't give Roosevelt credit for ending the depression. And then progressives say the New Deal was too conservative. It didn't go far enough. Basically, Roosevelt was the greatest of the liberal presidents. And so what you think of him depends on what you think about American liberalism. He was not himself a radical, but some of the things he did were radical. And he gave people hope and he took action and he made space for a much more active involvement of the U.S. government in the economy. He also extended the powers of the presidency in ways that weren't always democratic. Whenever he was hemmed in by Congress, he would sort of go over its head to the American people. Probably had the long-term effect of increasing the power of the presidency relative to the other branches. Often you will hear people say that it was not the New Deal, but the Second World War that pulled the United States out of the Depression. In a way that is true, but you really can't draw a clear line between the New Deal and the Second World War. The government that made the New Deal is the government that fought the war. The kinds of economic policies that the New Dealers favored, the kind of business, government, labor partnership at the center of the New Deal, that's also how America waged World War II. When Roosevelt laid out America's war aims in 1941, he listed four freedoms that people everywhere in the world ought to enjoy. Those freedoms came right out of the New Deal. And at the end of the war, when Americans set out to build a new world system, uh, the United Nations and the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe and the Bretton Woods Agreement for world trade, it was all out of the New Deal playbook. If Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations at the end of the First World War was a kind of progressivism on a world scale, the world order constructed in 1945 after the Second World War was a kind of New Deal for the world. 
But we will talk about the Second World War and the post-war world next week. Thanks very much for watching. Don't mind the boss if he's cross when you're gay. He'll get a pink slip next month anyway. Three little letters that make life okay. W-P-A. Party, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Party, oh, dear, oh, dear.